reading is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfect as you are perfect, Father. We must be perfect as you are perfect. We are not. Not on our own hopeless in that regard. We cannot be perfect. We are so shot through with sin. And so we need you to transform us by your word. Speak to us. New creations in Christ. Alive. Alive and clothed in righteousness. Perfect, not by our own works, but by Christ's. God, do these things in our midst today, I pray, as we come before your word and consider it, let it penetrate our hearts and go to the deepest parts of our being, that we would be made new, that we would be further conformed in the image of your Son, even if by one degree. May it happen this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. According to opendoors.org, which is a persecution watchdog, some of the worst persecution that's happening on planet Earth right now is happening in Eritrea. And most of that is Christian-on-Christian violence, Christians killing Christians. Eritrea's neighbor, Ethiopia, they're on the brink of all-out chaos and war. Already there's been tons of bloodshed, and probably, if things continue, There will be terrible tribal civil war in Ethiopia. Across the Red Sea, just a little, really a small skip across the ocean, in Yemen, there is war. In Israel, there is war with Hamas. There's war between Russia and Ukraine. There's the cartel wars in Mexico. And in our own land, we're deeply entrenched in a divisive battle between ideas and identity. We see the mounting casualties of our culture war reflected through the unprecedented levels of depression and anxiety and suicide, especially among our youth. 
So ours is a world that's filled with violence and pride and selfishness and arrogance and, and lusts as diverse as its people. And we see these things and, and if I, how can you not ask, can anybody subjugate the raging of these nations? Can anybody speak peace over the violence of these storms? Where does our help come from? But the prophet Daniel, he spoke of such a one from whom our help comes. He writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there was one like a son of man, and he came and was presented before the ancient of days. And to him was given a dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." And in Jesus of Nazareth, that son of man has come, the Christ, the king of all kings. And only this prince of peace can quiet the raging of the nations. And it is finished. And so it shall be. And that is our reality. Paul writes, for he must reign, as he presently does, he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so Jesus has brought his death-defeating, enemy-subjugating, peace-proliferating, life-transforming kingdom to earth. It is here in our midst, and we are in it, and we are a part of it. And through this Sermon on the Mount, which we behold today, Christ lifts the veil so that we could behold with our spiritual eyes things that are beyond our sight, this kingdom that is in our midst. That's what he's showing us in this glorious sermon from Matthew chapter 5 to 7. And perhaps more profoundly than any other place in the Sermon on the Mount, our passage today gives color and shape to the kingdom of heaven. So what I, wanted, what I want us to see, if he gives us eyes to see, is a kingdom that is governed not by law but by love. And that as far as the heavens are above the earth, so is this love above our love. You know, people tell me that it's good to be practical in a sermon, to have practical points. But this is the most impractical sermon probably that I'll ever deliver. You'll see what I mean. You know, Jesus went down to the water to get baptized in the Jordan and John was there, and John protested. Like, how can the Messiah come to be baptized, to receive this baptism of repentance? What does he need to repent for? So John protested, and then Jesus responds with, Let it be so now, for thus it is, fulfill, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then the whole section of the Sermon on the Mount that we've been in for some weeks, from verses 17 to the end of the chapter, chapter 5, it shows us how truly Jesus is the fulfillment of all righteousness. That his righteousness is a righteousness far exceeding that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Look at verse 17 of chapter 5. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Then in verse 20, he says, For I tell you, unless you, your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
And then we've progressed through anger and lust and divorce and oaths, and we've seen each time how Jesus is the the fulfillment of both the law and righteousness. He is righteousness in fulfillment of the law. And today we come to the core of the law, of the Mosaic law. We come to its very center, to the essence of righteousness, where we see the un legislated, unrestrained, otherworldly law of love, heaven's love, God's love, on full display. And it's breathtaking and terrifying, truly. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And twice we're going to hear Jesus utter those words today, eye for eye, or sorry, uh, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And again, Jesus, he's not minimizing the law, he's not abolishing the law, he's setting up a contrast. We saw this last week, he's setting up a contrast between the Mosaic law, or really how people have come to interpret the Mosaic law, and the law of the kingdom, this new law, this otherworldly law, a contrast between hand and heart, between desire and action. And so remember those four things that we looked at, that this contrast is setting us up for. One, Jesus is pointing to desires rather than behaviors. Two, no amount of rule following or avoidance of sin can produce the righteousness that God demands. Three, Jesus is moving his followers away from rule following and into open-ended pursuit of him. And then fourth, Jesus satisfies those who hunger and thirst for righteousness with his righteousness. So you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It comes from a longer passage in the Mosaic Law. Uh, there's a couple like it, but here's one. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. The idea is that whatever harm is caused, the offending party would receive a proportionate penalty. And that's important. It's it's setting up a protection in two directions. First, the perpetrator is not going to get off easy. They will receive the just consequence for what they have done. And so the, the, the party that's been victimized receives justice. The second protection is that the perpetrator is not going to receive a consequence greater than the one that they perpetrated, right? There were like, these ancient blood feuds that an offense was committed and then a greater offense was given and it would continue to escalate until like these families or these tribes are entirely wiped out, which is what in part we're seeing happen in Ethiopia right now. But this says, don't, don't take more than what was taken. Eye for eye, not whole body for eye. Thus the perpetrator receives justice for his offense and no more. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It's fair, even if it is loveless and brutal at times. And then, and then after saying that, Jesus begins to set up his contrast. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you in the right cheek, turn to him the other also. 
If somebody's going to slap you in the right cheek and they're standing opposite you, they have to use their, they have to, the backhand, that right cheek, right? It's a backhanded slap that Jesus is talking about. And so living in a culture that values the left hand, or the right hand over the left, that's a serious offense. That, that is the, about the greatest offense that you could perpetrate, that you can commit upon a person. And I think today it's even a spectacular offense to be backhanded in the face. And Jesus says, if someone offends you, even in the most spectacular, demeaning, humiliating, degrading kind of way, offer them the opportunity to do it again. Present them with the other cheek. Isn't that so unlike the laws that govern us? Nobody's like this. Stand up for yourself. You protect yourself. Don't let anybody disrespect you like that. Fight back. But again, Jesus' words from the Beatitudes, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And then we saw that the last thing that meek is, is weak. Meekness is, is strength deferred. It's power held back. It's like having the power to go into that fight, to get the slap in the face and obliterate that person. And yet you don't. Instead, you turn the other cheek. That is powerful meekness. Oh no, where are my tissues? Thanks, brother. Sometimes I wonder how anything happens from up here. Look at verse 40. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. To lose your tunic, is, it's to be sued to such a point that you lose the shirt off your back, essentially. So Jesus is saying, if someone takes you to court and they take everything from you, they, they take the shirt off your back, give them more. Give them more. And we miss the, the significance, I think, of what's being said here oftentimes because giving away your cloak like this, um, it, it's a step that very few, if any, would be willing to take in, Jew, in Jesus' audience. Since ancient times, the cloak was considered a basic human right. No one was allowed to deprive you of your cloak. Listen to this from Exodus 22. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in a pledge... You shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that, his, his, that is his only covering, and, if, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, says God, I will hear, for I am compassionate. So according to Mosaic law, no one was allowed to take your cloak. Basic human right. That was forbidden, to steal from another person. But Christ is saying, what your adversary has no right to claim, you, disciple, may freely offer. You, disciple, should freely offer. In the context of the church, Paul, Paul writes about an attitude like this, and it should be even more pronounced among us. He writes, to have a lawsuit at all with one another in the church 
is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Why not give up your rights for the sake of others? Suffer that they might have success. Even if that means your own humiliation or that you become impoverished as a result, are you willing to lay that all aside for the good of another? Christ is saying, are you willing to give away your most basic rights to those who would greedily, hungrily take it from you? Christ's command force us to ask questions like these, questions that strike at the very core of who, are, of who we are, the center of our character, our heart, exposes what's there. Are you willing to lay aside your most basic rights for someone that doesn't care one bit about those rights? And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. If you lived within a Roman-occupied territory, the Romans could at any time subject you to, to temporary forced labor. And one of the ways they did that is they're going along the road, they see some local along the road, they could subjugate them for a moment to carry their, their own burden and make that person be their porter for a spell. And under this, the, this, a severe threat of penalty if they did not do this, They'd be forced to drop everything, to carry these heavy loads. And a mile is a Roman measurement, not a Jewish measurement. So you know the Romans are imposing this in the context that Jesus is speaking. And and that's exactly what happens when Jesus is carrying his cross. First, he's being subjugated to carry the burden. And then when Jesus can no longer do it, Simon of Cyrene is brought over. He's being given this very penalty. Carry this burden to Golgotha. And I imagine myself... I imagine myself walking along one of these ancient roads and I've got some agenda on my mind. I've got my own plans. And then this arrogant oppressor walks up on me and he forces me to drop everything and to work for him immediately, this Roman oppressor. And I could do nothing but comply, like no dignity, no regard. And everything inside me, I know it, would rage against this situation. And I would burn. And I would be degraded. And then I'd see it happening to my countrymen, my brothers and sisters, maybe my mom. And I would become a zealot. I would have been a zealot in Jesus' day. I would want to be fighting against these Romans. But Jesus says, if you feel oppressed by someone, if there is somebody who's trying to unjustly control you, to domineer you, submit. Submit to their demands. And then don't just submit. Go to the extra mile. Exceed their expectations. Give to them more than they are, than they are demanding of you. Overshadow their injustice with your meekness and generosity. Can injustice be conquered in meekness and generosity? And in our age, dominated by real and imagined strata of oppression, these words of Christ are incredibly unnatural. 
Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So I grew up in southeast Pennsylvania, and had a lot of excursions into Philadelphia, and you go to Center City, and there isn't a street where there isn't somebody asking for money. And Philly has a really bad drug problem, especially right now, and it's impossible to justify giving money away. You know where it's going to go. And then I've been to destitute neighborhoods in Zambia, and I've been to slums in Costa Rica, and I've been to refugee camps in Iraq, and at any moment there can just be a swarm of children surrounding you begging for things. And you certainly don't have enough to give to everybody, but you know that if you give to one and not another, the the tension and the desperation of that moment is going to potentially get out of control. So Jesus is saying regardless of those situations, Regardless of what that beggar is going to blow their money on, potentially, however impractical this sounds, give to the one who begs from you. It's unqualified, it's open-ended, there's no restriction on, upon, upon it, there's no nuance. They ask, you give. Similarly, if somebody wants to borrow money, let them borrow the money. If they ask, lend it. No nuance, no qualification. And then there's a a sentence that I skipped that takes all of these four scenarios to the very next level, way beyond our grasp. This is a righteousness that could only be found in heaven. See the sentence in verse 39. Do not resist the one who is evil. And all four scenarios are in that context. If the person who backhands you across the face is super condescending and arrogant and they delight in your humiliation, give them the other cheek and take another. Give up your rights to the person who doesn't care about your rights and they don't care about you and they would trample you under their feet for their own pleasure. Give up your rights to them. Serve the person who actively, knowingly oppresses you. Give money to the beggar, even if they're going to blow it on drugs and alcohol. Do not resist the one who is evil. Think of the worst person. Do these things for that person. And these are breathtaking words and terrifying words because they're so unnatural and they're so impractical and they're unreasonable. They are, in fact, impossible. They are impossible. If this is the law of the kingdom of heaven, how in the world are we supposed to do this? But again, remember that this is is the law of the kingdom of God and it does not function like the laws of men. Jesus is not delivering dictates that we must obey with precision and rigidity. For if you give to every beggar, you're soon going to be out of money and you'll have nothing left to give. And if you let oppression go unchecked, then oppression will grow. And if everyone's supposed to give up their rights, then in the end, only the, only the wrong will be right. And sometimes it's, it's more loving to correct than it is to silently suffer. And so every situation calls for nuance and wisdom and for a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. So again, Jesus, he's not delivering dictates we are to obey with precision and rigidity. He's delivering a principle instead to govern our hearts, our lives, 
And I wonder, is this principle not clear to you? Is it clear to you now? Through Christ's words, we see a complete lack of self-interest in the kingdom of heaven. The disciples of Jesus Christ are to be governed by the principle of self-sacrificial love. Let our own interests suffer. Let us lay aside our rights. Let us serve without reciprocation. If only for the good of another, let us lay everything aside for the good of another. And then Jesus takes it even higher, even more challenging into territory that's beyond comprehension and entirely revolutionary. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy. The law did, not command, or the law did command you to love your neighbor, it did not command you to hate your enemy. But that is how it became mutated and interpreted. They wanted to think only of fellow Jews as their neighbor. And so those on the outside, the Gentiles, they thought of, they thought they didn't need to treat them with love, to think of them as their neighbors. And they began to scorn them and discriminate against them. And in effect, they began to hate their neighbor, or hate their enemies. I'm sorry. As a twisting of the law. And it's something that Jesus began to untangle, untwist, when he told the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he's doing it here. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain to the just and the unjust. Love your enemy is oxymoronic. Because an enemy, by definition, is someone you do not love. Your enemy would see you harm. They want your failure. They, they would take from you. They would want to persecute you. Pray for them. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Sermon on the Mount in verses 11 through 12, Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice! Be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. I wonder if that blessing he's talking about is the blessing of praying for the person who's persecuting you, at least in part. In the kingdom of heaven, into which we are born again, it is a privilege, it is a blessing to bless those who curse you, to pray for those who persecute you. And it's a blessing now because it marks you as the sons and daughters of God. Right? Those that proceed from or come are born again because of our Heavenly Father and His work in our lives. He who indiscriminately rains blessings upon the just and the unjust, the good and the evil alike. His love that is unmeasured and generous and vast. Who else but the children of God could pray for those who actively, openly, oppressively hate them? And praying for your persecutor is just an expression of how we are to love our enemies. Loving our enemies, it's so much higher than just being nice to them. 
so much higher than superficial superficial kindness love is patient and kind love does not envy or boast it is not arrogant or rude it does not insist on its own way it is not irritable or resentful it does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth love bears all things believes all things hopes all things endures all things love never ends and you hear that all the time in the context of marriage and that's good but what about in the context of your enemies in the face of hate the disciples of Jesus are to be patient and kind and hoping and believing and enduring we long to see that enemy that persecutor reconciled unto god and reconciled unto man i'm going to read a little bit of a story it was shared by garrett simerson in the four fields intensive that we did last weekend it's stunning and i'm just going to share a bit of it it so well illustrates what jesus is talking about this man is interviewing a russian named stoyan Stoyan which means stand firm or stay and is a common eastern european name Stoyan was about 60 years old energetic and friendly we met in the capital city of his country after my usual explanation of who i was and what i was doing doing Stoyan began telling me his story he began by talking about his parents at the end of world war 2 the communists began consi- consolidating their power throughout his country eventually they took control of the government for decades the authorities oppressed pastor father his father remained in custody for 10 years at first he said they held him in a secret police place in our city every morning one of the guards would take some of his own human waste and spread it on the piece of toast that he brought to my father for breakfast Stoyan reported that the emotional and psychological impact of this persecution was even worse and left deeper scars than any physical mistreatment. 9 discouraging months passed with no word about his father. Stoyan's mother finally received notification that her husband was being transferred with a group of other prisoners to a distant labor camp. The jailers allowed the family a 1-hour visit before the transfer. Stoyan and his mother went to the well-known torture facility of the secret police on their assigned day they were ushered out into a football sized field along with many other families who had come to see their beloved husbands and fathers and sons most of the prisoners rushed out to talk with their relatives from the other side of a long row of tables lined up to separate visitors from the inmates stoyan recalled but my father did not appear my mother and i sat and waited we waited for a long time when finally our hour of visitation was almost up another prisoner evidently a trustee walked through the visiting room doors carrying what looked like a bundle of rags he strode uh, he, he strode toward us and laid the bundle on top of one of the tables My mother took his hand recalled Stoyan 
And together we walked up to the table where, only because of the piercing blue eyes staring out at me from those rags, did I recognize the skeletal figure of a man. Anyway, I took my father's hand in mine, and I put my face close to his. I whispered, Papa, I'm so proud of you. And I was 13 years old. Mama knew what my father would want most, so she slipped a little pocket New Testament under his wool cap. The jailer saw what she had done. He rushed over and took the little book, and then he summoned his commander. The officer took one look at the book, and before furiously throwing it to the ground, he screamed at my mother with a great crowd of people around us, Woman, don't you realize that it is because of this book and because of your God that your husband is here? I can kill him. I can kill you, and I can kill your son. And I would be applauded for it. Stoyan was remembering something that had happened decades earlier, but he recited the words as if they had just been spoken yesterday. My mother looked at that prison officer and said, Sir, you are right. You can kill my husband. You can kill me. I know that you can even kill our son, but nothing you can do will separate us from the love that is in Jesus Christ. And Stoyan said, I was so proud of my mama. More than 10,000 political prisoners died in Stoyan's country during those years. There was little hope that his father would survive his ordeal. Near the end, his guards made one last cruel attempt to break him and informed the pastor that he was scheduled for execution. They took him outside, tied him to a pole, and offered him one last opportunity to deny his faith. If he would not deny his faith, they told him he would be shot. He straightened his back, stood tall, and declared, I will not deny Christ. The guards became furious with him. Evidently, they did not have the power or authority to carry out their threat of execution. And evidently, they had actually been given very different orders. They continued to insult and curse him even as they began to untie him. Then, much to his surprise, instead of escorting him back to his cell, they took him to the prison wall, unlocked the gate, opened the door, and literally threw him out of the prison without a word of explanation. He was so shocked by what had just happened, he didn't know what to do. It finally dawned on him that he had been released. He began to walk. Much later, he found his way to his family's new home. It was a Saturday when he arrived and no one was home. When he found the church and discovered his family and other church members were praying for him at the altar, and after a joyous reunion, he was finally able to preach again. One Sunday, a few months later, an elderly woman asked the pastor for help. He did not know her. She told the pastor that she had a diabetic son, a son who had recently gone blind and was now close to death. He needed medication to manage his agonizing pain. Unfortunately, as a believer, there was no way for her to get that medicine for her son. Stoyan's father promised to try and help acquire the medication. Eventually, he was able to do that. When he took the medicine to the old woman's apartment, she led him into the bedroom to introduce the pastor to her son, and she was grateful for the medicine. She wanted the pastor to pray for her son. When Stoyan's father entered the room, he got the shock of his life. The blind 
an invalid, middle-aged man lying helpless on the bed before him was a prison guard who had spread human waste on the pastor's breakfast toast every morning. <laughs> oh Lord, do not let me fail you now. Stoyan's father prayed beneath his breath without identifying himself or saying anything that might give away the connection. The pastor granted his former tormentor forgiveness in his own heart, helped the old woman to minister the medication to relieve the man's pain, and prayed for her son. And then he returned home in awe by the new and deeper understanding of God's grace. In fact, he was so overwhelmed by God's grace that the experience changed his life and the lives of his family members. That's so hard to read. What a testimony, though. That is the most powerful otherworldly love. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Even the evil person from verse 39 love, loves those who love him. Right? It's easy to love the people that love you, and it's comfortable to have your friends over to your house. And, you know, that's good. What is, what is otherworldly about that? It's not the kind of supernatural, supernatural love that can only be found in the kingdom of heaven. That's broadly found across this planet right now. The love that can only be found in the kingdom of God is a love so deep and so selfless that it spills out upon our enemies. Only the sons and daughters of God are marked by such otherworldly love. We are called to be marked by that. Verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect as God is perfect. Is there anything more unachievable than that? But praise to the perfect one in whom there is no shred of selfish ambition or conceit, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a man, form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Constantly surrounded by the begging masses, Jesus fed and he healed and he had compassion with unbounded patience and generosity. And when he was on trial before that cursed cross, the Son of God was slapped in the face and beaten and spit upon And he was forced to carry that Roman cross until his body gave way beneath its weight. And and his cloak was taken and gambled away. And he was left there to hang on the cross naked and ashamed. And all of this 
In all of this, as evil as his persecutors were, with supreme meekness and love, he gave no resistance, and instead he prayed for those who persecuted, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they're stripped of all dignity and dying in agony and shame. He gave up his life for his enemies. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. To all who believe today in this room, Christ has turned aside the wrath of God so that you may have life. Through his resurrected life, you shall live forevermore. You have been reconciled unto God, and now he speaks his command upon you. Be perfect as I am perfect. The world hears this command, and it is something that is impossible and absurd. But the disciples of, of Christ hear this command like the unformed void once heard the voice, let there be light, let there be new creation, let you be clothed in righteousness, perfect as I am perfect. Disciple, you are made new. Come alive. That's the law of the kingdom of God. There is no law of men. No amount of rule following or avoidance of sin can create this perfection in you. Rather, we come to God in open-ended pursuit, hungry and thirsty for righteousness, hungry and thirsty for Christ because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord, and we would lay everything aside for his sake, and he will indeed satisfy us, body and soul. We come to him, and he will fill us with love otherworldly love, a love that's become our love. He will give us his own love. And how can we not now love? Because we were the enemies, transformed by his. So who then are we to withhold love, even from the one who is evil? So you see the beggar, the oppressor, the offender, There is no regulation that obligates you. Rather, you are governed by another worldly love to live as sons and daughters of the perfect one, having been newly created in Christ Jesus our Lord, to love. The Prince of Peace has poured out his peace upon us. We have been given a peace that surpasses all understanding. Christ subdues his enemies through peace and through love and through joy. Ambassadors of Jesus Christ, you sit here today commanded to go into this community and to the ends of the earth with that very love that the nations would be glad and come around that throne from every tribe, language, and worship. would bow their knee and the raging of the nations would be stilled. For God has highly exalted, on him, exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And to him was given a dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. 
For he must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So come to him, all enemies. Come to him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion of love. He subjugates his enemies through love today. And he has promised to destroy our death. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled unto God. He became sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The righteousness fulfilled in faith in Jesus Christ, newly made perfect as God is perfect. Hallelujah. To the end of time. Hallelujah. Father, how good you are. To take us so rebellious and sinful and vile and lost and broken and speak life, speak new creation over us. Make us your sons and your daughters, bringing us into your family. And now nothing in all creation will ever separate us from your love. No amount of threat or persecution, no cost too high. Nothing can separate us from your love. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. And I pray it in his name. Amen.